0: Hello and welcome to the Nevermind the Bar Chart Season 1 finale. The elections, <laughs> a preliminary post-mortem Indeed. starring myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host... Stephen Toole. Now, we've had two elections yeah. since we last recorded. Uh, an important one and a <laughs> less important one. Go on, go on, tell me the <laughs> we do the less important one first? Yeah. So, uh, there has been the election for Liberal Democrat Party President... Uh, thank you very much to listeners, and possibly to you, Stephen, for people who voted for me in gonna the election. Keep, I'm going to
1: keep my vote a secret, I think. <laughs> um, so
0: I was elected on Saturday with 59% of the vote. Uh, so thank you very much to everyone who voted for me. I take up office on the 1st of January uh, in succession to Sal Brinton. Um, particularly, should want to pay tribute to Sal because she has worked phenomenally hard in her five years uh, in in the post, so thank you for all you have done, Sal. And I'm sure her wise advice will help me at other points, uh, where in, in in the coming years. And um, one of the sad and just so weird, I can hardly believe I'm about to say this side effects of me being elected president and the general election, is that the president is set down in the constitution as being the part one of the parties two interim co-leaders, in the event that the party's leader. ...loses their seat at a general election. So really weirdly, from 1st of January... ...I will also be interim co-leader of the party... ...along with our uh, parliamentarian Ed Davey. Um, Off the back of that, obviously things uh, are a little bit different... ...if you are president or indeed interim <laughs> co-leader um, of a party. So the reason I said up front that this was our season one finale... ...is this podcast is going to keep going in the new year... ...but in a slightly different format... That reflects uh, the constraints, shall we say, uh, that I will face in terms of, for example, if I say something is maybe not brilliant, that sounds rather different when it's coming uh, coming from the mouth of an interim co-leader.
1: Um, so the B- basically, basically, Mark, you're just too important now, aren't you? <laughs> uh, that's that's it. You know, I, I'm going to have to. Say, someone did say to me beforehand that I'm going to have to refer to you as el presidente. Um, throughout the podcast, I'm so, just looking uh, for the edit button here <laughs> in the
0: editing suite. Um, so the plan for next year is that we will the podcast will keep going. It will be done in the format of a series of me interviewing different people either in the Liberal Democrats. Or with interesting views and relevant expertise outside the Liberal Democrats, a bit like that will make a change. We've from, done a couple um... of <laughs> uh, a couple of special episodes we've done this year, so this is our final podcast uh, together, Stephen. Um, and I guess it's rather appropriate that we have a general election result that gives both cause for optimism and pessimism, which <laughs> neatly neatly plays to our relative oh, roles yeah. in season one of this podcast. Yeah,
1: indeed. Um, well, I guess. Uh, I mean, like, well, the thing <laughs> That's is, pretty much an a, election... How do I sum up the fact that um, I'm, I was gutted by the result uh, last Thursday but also entirely unsurprised um, and you know, those who've been listening mm. to us over the last mm. um, few months will um, realise that I wasn't that surprised on the night. Mm. In fact, I think, uh, to be fair, the Lib Dems did one seat better than my prediction for them um, which was ten seats. Um, though I predicted a conservative majority of 40 rather than the um, stonking 80 that mm. actually materialised. So, yeah, it's that kind of weird dilemma of um, uh, the person trying not to kind of sound, I told you so, but it, it did feel like the last few months have been leading up to this mm. conclusion. The
0: positive element. Indeed, there are, are some injecting it. In Uh, is the Liberal Democrat vote was up by half, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1.3 million or so more people voted Liberal Democrat, which meant uh, increasing the percentage share of the vote by around
1: four points. Yeah, and I think importantly, I mean, one of the things that I did uh, say, you accused me of this of being pessimism, but uh, I actually thought it was realism and optimism (laughs) at the same time, was uh, when Joe Swinston was doing the I stand before you as a candidate Mm. to become Prime Minister I was saying that probably more likely it would be go back to your constituencies and prepare for a decent second place. Mm. And actually, that's the more uh, that's the actuality, which is that the party is in second place in, what, 109 seats mm. uh, throughout the country and now? And I think one of Doubled, the things... Double the previous election. So it means that there's a, there is a springboard for mm. Lib damn success, uh, which was uh, not there before the election and was part of the reason why the mm. uh, result was probably as it was. And I think one of the big challenges for the party
0: in the next couple of years following on from that is one of the patterns you can see in the election results is that areas where the party had a stronger organisational local government base, it did better. So why did we come mm-hmm. so close but tragically not quite winning in say Wimbledon? A big part of that was the credibility and so the organisational experience that came from having a local team that had won council elections, had built up a council mm-hmm. base, had learnt about running elections and knew what a polling day involved and all of that. And the fact that it looks likely this parliament will be a longer rather than shorter parliament, I mean if I had to bet now, well a I would try to avoid betting because <laughs> what people say soon after an election so often turns out to be wrong, but if I had to bet it's going to be a five-year parliament and therefore the challenge for the party is to use those five years to get a Wimbledon-type level of organisation in many more seats, whilst the fact that that next general election is so far away may mean that people who are more interested in national politics than, say, local government, etc., may feel that's just so far away. Why do they want to particularly get active? Yeah. So that will be a big, a big well, challenge so to motivate such people and keep them involved.
1: I don't disagree, but uh, one small point on the five years is that, as I would assume Conservatives will repeal the Fixed-Term Parliament mm-hmm. Act, I would have thought four years is quite plausible. That's true. That's, that's, a,
0: that's, that's a fair point. Although I think um, it will be an interesting question whether if you have power you wish to cede, <laughs> cede power earlier than necessary. And it's quite possible um, this Parliament will end up a little bit like the 1992 Parliament. Uh, by which I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the mm-hmm. Tories' surprise victory in the nineteen ninety two election, there was an awful lot of talk about was Britain turning Japanese. In fact, quite a good book with exactly that title. And um, because in Japan, the the then ruling party, you know, won decade after decade after decade, um, and that you know was the fourth Tory election victory in a row. In that yeah. case, you know, surely the Tories are, are, are destined to rule forever. And within a few months, in this because of the uh, exchange rate mechanism debacle there was a generation defining political disaster that wrecked the Tory party reputation for economic Mm -hmm. competence and the Tories never recovered from that and the 92 to 97 parliament did end up lasting five years because John Major was just so desperately hanging on hoping that some something would turn up that might allow him to to sneak another surprise victory and of course instead he went down to landslide defeat now it's possible that with what will happen on Brexit next that we may indeed have a relatively close repeat of the 92-97 parliament story Um, or it's more likely it will be a different sequence of events but I think too many predictions at this stage are definitely foolish other than it looks like we will have more rather than less time to work out at a general election level, what does the party need to do next? Where does it go? How does it rebuild? Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm not, I think uh, I don't necessarily disagree, and I think there's a good chance that Boris Johnson, who is already an unpopular prime minister, will, uh, in the next year, become one of the most unpopular prime ministers on record. That said, the, I think one the two crucial differences from ninety two to ninety seven compared to where we are now, um, which. There's nothing inevitable about out, this. You're
0: the one now digressing from our I am pre-planned. Digressing,
1: but, um, I just wish to put it on record that I'm not the only one who can I, digress. I, I, I'm, I'm responding to your digression, I feel. Uh, which is that <laughs> I'll in start talking about the 1832 Parliament in a moment, don't worry. 1997, uh, I think two crucial differences. One, the Labour Party was at a very different point in its journey yeah, and uh, elected John Smith. Uh, and then, of course, Tony Blair. And that's uh, you know completely changed mm. how the Labour Party was defined. Now, maybe that will happen again in this Parliament. It doesn't feel very likely, but who knows? We'll see. Can the I just other, ask the the question other question on that? The other, just, sorry, just the, the one other one was that uh, the majority was very different. Mm. And so uh, John Major won a majority mm. of 26, mm. I think it was, or 21, something like that. And it, it was eroded over time through parliamentary mm. by-elections so that he kind of ended up hanging on because he had to hang on. And obviously, with a, a majority of eighty, Boris Johnson, unless something completely ridic- ridiculous happens, will still mm. have a solid majority yeah. throughout this parliament, and that changes the dynamic. So, I, I think you might be right, but I think those two conditions um, in ninety two, ninety seven, aren't present now.
0: I, I, I mean, I think you're right that Labour is not in the same place in the sort of cycle of recovery that they were in after the ninety two mm-hmm. defeat. Um, I do wonder, though, whether Labour may change more quickly than some people are expecting if, for example, someone like Lisa Nandy becomes Labour Party leader. Mm -hmm. So I'm particularly struck, I don't know very much about her, and I certainly don't know very much about what her odds really are of becoming leader. But if you look at her background of cross-party working, but also of being uh, pretty popular with Corbynistas, Mm-hmm. of being very strongly, for example, pro-Palestinian, but not affected, you know, not on the receiving end of any allegations of anti-Semitism. You know, you, you can almost say that actually somebody like Lisa Nandi might be able to move the party yeah. on quite quickly in terms of having credibility with Corbinistas because of her personal commitment to the Palestinian cause being in a really good position, perhaps to lead Labour out of its troubles over anti-Semitism because she has that credibility that she would be fighting anti-Semitism as a friend of of the Palestinian cause. Mm. Um, and her record of cross-party working may mean that, you know, she looks at the electoral maths as well. Yeah. And things. Yeah. So um, who knows? But what we do know is what the election result was. So shall we try and make sense yes. of why it happened
1: yes. and how it happened? Indeed. So, uh, well, I guess the first question um, arises, is were the Lib Dems right to push for a general election from the outset? Mm. Because I guess if you think of the two big strategic mm. decisions Joe Swinson took, as leader uh, in, the, in the short time she had, one was um, to call a general election and by saying that she would um, line up with the SNP uh, and with the Conservatives in order to override the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. And that gave um, Boris Johnson the space he needed uh, and forced Jeremy Corbyn's hand as well. So, uh, I mean, at the time I felt it was the right decision. A um, couple of reasons, I suppose. One was that it seemed very likely Uh, And I think probably would have happened that Boris Johnson's Brexit deal was going to get through Parliament Mm. uh, one way or another. It was not going to be a comfortable ride, Mm. but uh, I think the votes were there to make sure that the deal happened. And so you had to ask, uh, why would the Liberal Democrats Mm. then allow that to happen Mm. without trying to put in a a democratic um, stop to it? Uh, And the second was, of course, that the party was, um, at the time, doing well in the polls. And so it felt like, both in terms Mm. of the timing and uh, where the party was, it was the right decision. Obviously, in hindsight, it looks like it may not have been the right decision. That said, we don't know the counterfactual. What would have happened if, Mm. um, if Joe Swinson had allowed the Parliament to run its course, a uh, second referendum almost certainly wouldn't have happened. The votes were never there for it, and I don't believe... I mean, there are people out there, including folk I respect, like Steve Richards, who say that it, it was going to mm. happen. I just don't see how I, the votes yeah, would I've
0: stack never, up. I, and I think I've
1: seen you, amongst others,
0: query him yeah. on this point on, on Twitter, for example. I've never seen a follow-up answer from him that convinces. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to the idea that maybe I just don't understand enough about the internal politics of, say, the Labour Party, and there is a sequence of events by which mm-hmm. something would have happened that seems to me really implausible. But one of the things that reinforces my doubts about Steve Richards' argument is the way that he doesn't seem to have a, actually, this is the group of people who might have moved, and this is what would make, you know, that level of detail about, uh, to, to back it up, um, that would convince. So, so I, I, I broadly agree with you. Um, I, I mean, amongst the what ifs, it's it's worth remembering that um, one of the big what ifs, perhaps the bigger what if for British politics, is what if those Labour leavers who voted against Theresa's May deal mm-hmm. had actually yeah. voted for yeah. it? If Theresa's May deal had gone through, from their perspective, they would have got what they wanted in terms of Britain leaving the European Union with a deal. Mm-hmm. They would have also avoided a Boris Johnson premiership. Yeah. They would have avoided a landslide defeat for their own party. Yeah. Of Of possible mistakes, I think the fact that the Lib Dems decided about having a general election, and it's worth, let alone the DUP, Yeah, (laughs) is is a pretty small, and particularly as remember it was a joint Lib Dem SNP announcement, Mm -hmm. um, and there were and are far more SNP MPs than the Mm -hmm. Democrat MPs. In a way, it was the SNP decision that was much the more significant. Obviously, Lib Dems do at least have responsibility for our own decision. I think, like you, I think. it really did look like Brexit in some form was going to go through. And if you're against Brexit, you therefore have to try to do something to stop it. I also think that uh, at the time, as you say, the Lib Dems were doing quite well in the polls. And there were a lot of people saying that, um, well, this is just all about Brexit. What's going to happen after Brexit to the party? So there was also a sense of if we're going to have an election in the nearish future, it's also democratically better to have it before Brexit because then... I mean whatever one thinks about Brexit it's not surprising my views on it's going to be disastrous haven't changed I can't really argue with the fact that there has now been a general election in which there was a very clear mm-hmm. deal available to people and albeit it was first past the post and all of that but actually if you look at the vote share of you know Tory party plus uh, plus Brexit party etc put together mm-hmm. in as much as you can say there is a democratic Mandate the will of the people in the first-past-the-post election, there clearly has been a, a green light from the British public for that.
1: I guess. I mean, you know, this comes back to the Tony Blair argument, which is that there are a whole load of other issues tied up with it. Um, so, But, I, you know, I don't think we're going to fight over how far we agree with each other on this one, uh, other than that clearly there were lots of Conservative remainers who, in the end, still voted Conservative. Exactly. Because Corbyn they felt they had to, um, <clears throat> to stop De- Jeremy Corbyn. Who would, nonetheless, probably have voted Remain in a Brexit mm. referendum? So mm. it, it forced people into um, into voting positions that mm. they might not have otherwise taken if it had been a referendum. Yeah. But which, that's, that's which that's leads
0: on to obviously the perhaps the party signature policy. I don't mm-hmm. know why I put the word "perhaps" in. The party's <laughs> clearly, obviously, signature policy during the election of saying, if we win the election, we'll go for a revoke. Yeah. And um, I think there's a. I guess there's. Quite a few different aspects to this, and I think in coming to a view on whether was the policy a mistake or not, I think the key thing is to pay attention to all the pieces of evidence, mm-hmm. and in that sense, there is at the moment at least some quite contradictory evidence. <clears throat> we talked in I think it was the last edition of this poll of this podcast about some of the public polling, mm-hmm. uh, during, you know, that came out during the election campaign. So even deep into November, YouGov poll, etc., where people asked, you know, would you be happy with revoke as an outcome, you know, various different question wordings used in different polls and so on, and the consistent pattern across all of the polls and across time was that Remainers were pretty strong backers of saying revoke is something they wanted or were happy with or would feel was a legitimate outcome, depending on exactly what the question was. Leavers very much disliked it, but as a policy to appeal to Remainers, you look at those polling results and you think, actually, this does not look like a disastrous policy. Uh, clearly, the views of, for example, many Lib Dem canvassers is odds with mm-hmm. odds with that. Um, I was listening on the way over to recording this podcast to actually the latest edition of the New Statesman podcast, yep. and there is uh, there's an interesting discussion where Stephen Bush in particular addresses this question. He also refers in slightly despairing, mocking tones to how some people still look at the polls and thought the policy was a popular one. And I I did wonder whether he had me in mind when he said that. But but the point that he went on to make, which I think was a really good one, was that the risk with a poll question like that, and in a way with that sort of quantitative polling in general, is you get a slightly theoretical answer. And then maybe it was people were saying, actually, yeah, I guess I would like that. But then when faced with the choice in the context of a political debate and a vote that they themselves have to make, the sort of, well, I guess I'd, ideally I'd like a world of X mm-hmm. didn't translate into, therefore I think it's something to vote
1: for in this election. Yeah. I, mean, I think, well, yeah, I'm, uh, not to relitigate <clears throat> my points from last podcast too much, but uh, as I said, Ben, I think uh, <clears throat> it was a legitimate <clears throat> policy to put up when Conservatives were pushing for no deal. Mm. Uh, and that, of course, is the context in which conference... Uh, The Lib Dem conference voted for it uh, and it was advocated for by the party leadership. Uh, I think, as I said before, uh, the deal changed everything. This wasn't a Brexit election, this was a Brexit deal election and the fact that Boris Johnson had uh, something positive, constructive, Mm -hmm. agreed with the EU, whether we like it or not, to put up as his Brexit policy just completely changed everything. Mm -hmm. And the party and the Labour Party, the Lib Dems and the Labour Party, were both, I think, caught flat-footed and didn't clock that in time or respond in time. And I think the moment there was a deal, revoke looked like an anti-democratic policy because the only way in which uh, you could say that a referendum wasn't the way to undo the 2016 decision was if you could say, look, there's no deal to put up against it. Mm -hmm. Theresa May's deal was not a deal that was acceptable to Leavers, therefore it was unfair. And the idea of the Lib Dems uh, negotiating a an exit deal with the EU in order to put it up against Remain always looked false. So, no deal legitimate while, whilst uh, <clears throat> sorry, um, the a revoked policy legitimate whilst no deal was on the table the moment that was taken off the table by Boris Johnson's deal, it fell away. I think uh, to your point, I guess, on the polling, I did actually fact See, just check Just before you... we come
0: on to the polling, mm-hmm. I guess okay. it's worth adding as well, that idea that you might negotiate a deal that you don't really believe in to put to a referendum, yeah. in a way was... Labour's policy at yep, the election, yep. and that really didn't work well yep. for Labour. So I think you are absolutely right about the importance of potentially of that change of context Exactly. Uh,
1: in, in terms of polling, <clears> I was <throat> trying to fact check you at the time, and um, in, in our last podcast, and you were right that sixty four percent of Conservative remainers liked um, the revoke mm. policy. Uh, I then went back to it because it just to have a mm. add for my own curiosity, and um, the next polling question down was uh, about Boris Johnson's deal. Yep, and sixty eight percent. Of conservative remainers liked Boris mm. Johnson's deal, mm. so I think the uh, the polling evidence in that sense is a bit contradictory. Yes, revoke was seen as um, as a respectable respectable option, but so was Boris Johnson's deal. And, and I guess and with Boris Johnson's deal, you don't get Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. Exactly, that. exactly. So I think uh, that comes back to the uh, it's a point we've made before that, uh, and the Labour Party may have to take the lesson from this election of as well that individual policies mm. may be popular mm. it's a question of also whether they are credible and believable and the revoke policy was only credible and believable if you thought the Lib Dems would get mm. a majority uh, and no one yeah. um, certainly by the time it got to polling day thought that was uh, going to happen so in, f- in effect what people knew they were voting for if they were voting the Dem and revoke was that the best that might materialise was a hung parliament mm. and a kind of never ending referendum debate mm. etc and I think uh, for Conservative remainers in particular, maybe less so for other mm. uh, Lib Dem voters, and for those who uh, are Labour Lib mm. Dem leaning, but for Conservative remainers in particular, I suspect that sense of we need closure mm. on this issue, we need to move on, uh, and the last thing we need is another hung parliament, not being able to make a decision, mm. was um, pretty crucial in making that yep. in making that judgment.
0: One footnote to add to that before we move on to. Mm-hmm. Uh, item 1B on on in our show notes um, is just to say the party is going to be commissioning a very thorough and independent review of the election. So uh, just to, A, bear in mind, I reserve the right to completely change my views on everything I've just said, depending on what that review says. But you really are becoming a politician. Exactly. But B, to also emphasise that in that sense, even when I become president in the first of January, you know, my views are just one set of views that mm-hmm. you know I will in due course input into that review. And I'm actually very much looking forward to what that review makes of all of this, because this will be a really key issue to understand. Yeah. And obviously those caveats apply to the rest of what we say in terms of our preliminary thoughts on the lessons of the election. Um the next the next big issue is probably the question about uh, Joe Swinson having been a coalition minister, Mm -hmm. the party having been in coalition until four years ago, and therefore that being used as uh, something to criticise the party Mm -hmm. about and Joe personally about repeatedly through the election, in a way that obviously didn't happen to Tim Farron when he was leader, although he hadn't been a minister, but also... It didn't really happen to Vince Cable either now maybe that's in part because he wasn't a leader during a general election but I think certainly in his times of popularity when Labour were such as in the European elections when the party under Vince was doing well enough that opponents and the media were spending quite a lot of time talking about the party relatively speaking it didn't seem to be a problem either. Um, This time however I think most people's initial take on events is yes it was a problem
1: Yeah. I mean, did it come up in canvassing particularly that, uh, I I, I suppose my take on this is uh, uh, that, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have come up with Vince, partly because, um, uh, let's remember, Vince was, uh, in one sense, fortunate for his legacy as leader, Mm. that he had those last two Mm. um, really good local elections and then the European election results. Up until that point, there had been quite a lot of, Um, talk about how disappointing Vince's leadership Mm. had been and how he'd not been able to grasp the agenda etc. Now lots of that is unfair I think but nonetheless that was there. Um, I think with Jo Swinson uh, it was uh, I mean she this was one of the contrasts I suppose that came out during Mm. the leadership uh, election between her and Ed Davey and that Ed Davey was more of a I'm going to defend coalition Mm. robustly and say yes of course we didn't get everything Mm. we wanted but there were these big wins and uh, you know, I can point to my time as energy secretary, and the fact that um, you know this country has now got to the point where it's uh, you know is able to run on renewables mm. is thanks to the work that I did in coalition, in a way that would not have happened otherwise. Uh, so whereas Joe's was much more of a kind of concede and move on, uh, and uh, yeah, let's admit that there were things that happened that mm. were bad, and apologise for them, and say but we've changed. So I. I I don't know whether there's any way around um, these issues. I, I guess uh, it'll be an interesting one, I suppose, for the next leadership election, mm-hmm. if, say, it's Ed Davey versus Leila Moran. Am um, oh, I going to ask that all politician here and, yeah, yeah, and, I, I, and I, have can, strict neutrality? Um, but if, say, that mm-hmm. were the case, because I think Ed is the only um, uh, MP who could um, stand, who would actually have been a coalition minister, am I, uh, I correct in that? Um, I'm just going to leave you hanging in doubt. I quickly rapidly <laughs> tried to fact check can, you in my mind. I, he's as well. the only one I could think of. So I think, be uh, Campbell, okay, care, okay, so Alistair, but, but unlikely to stand. I'm guessing, um, given he's not stood in previous ones. So um, it's, you know, if Ed stands, he will be the person who has still that coalition, uh, taint legacy you mm. have, you want to call it, um, versus a new mm. M or newish uh, MP who doesn't have that. So uh, I guess the party will make that decision. Last time, I suppose, in the aftermath of Vince Cable, as you say, having got through unscathed, not having been challenged to the tuition mm. fees, I think it's hard to imagine in an Andrew Neil interview mm. he would not have had to defend, yep. again, the coalition policies in the same way that yep. um, Joe had to. Um, but nonetheless, the party will have that choice yep. this time round if Ed stands. If it doesn't, then uh, I guess it falls away as yep. a question, except in people's minds.
0: Yeah, and I, I, one of the... Tricky elements here is that what people say uh, about why they have come to a view and the actual reasons they have come to yeah. a view are not always the same. And the best example of this is the one that you know I frequently use because it's so important and true and striking is if you look at what happened to the Liberal Democrats after the 2010 general election, the party support plummeted immediately after the mm-hmm. election, and so before tuition fees, before NHS reform, before large-scale welfare benefits, before all the sorts of things that people very passionately say is the reason they don't like the Liberal Democrats, the party had lost support. Mm. So in a sense, it's not true to say that those elements cost the party support because the party had already lost the support. Um, But they became the route by which people subsequently vocalized and justified and felt that they should stick with that changed position. So one of the big questions about the the coalition stuff this time round is was it Joe's record in coalition and the party's record in coalition that drove the political support problem or was it that the party had the political support problem and that played out and was vocalized in the co- by t- referring mm-hmm. to coalition and yeah. um, and so therefore it could either be the cause or it might actually just be the symptom. Yeah. Um, and that will be, again, something I very much hope the review in due course will will dig into, because which of those two it is, is going to be quite important in terms of, you know, whoever the new leader is, to what extent does the party want
1: to talk up um, it's it's record in coalition. Yeah. I, mean, I guess the other point I'd make, and I can't remember if I'm anticipating now our agenda or not, um, in as far as we have one, is... <laughs> my my, my break-a-habit of, of season Exactly. One. Um, is that, uh, in a sense, uh, and this is a point that I've seen made by there was Andrew Adonis and again by Stephen Bush, um, is that uh, they make the point that actually the leader of the Liberal Democrats really is the leader of the Labour Party and that in many people's minds mm. the two are quite fused together. So, if you think about the last few elections, uh, the party um, in its post-merger status, you've got 1992, uh, when it had a disappointing result. I mean, in, in votes now, it would seem like a brilliant result, but at the time, it was disappointing. And, mm. um, you know, number of seats was, what, 19? Yeah, it went so down between... But, again, we would think, yeah, yeah
0: we'd take 19 over, it, well, over course, 11. yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, but at the time, a disappointing yeah. election, which, um, you know, looked like the Lib Dems had had a setback. Uh, and then... Uh, after that, uh thousand one, two thousand and five, two thousand and ten, good results for the party. Arguments that it could have done better on in various uh, of those elections, but nonetheless, relative to where the party is now, they were they were incredibly good election results. Um, and of course, what happened during that time is that you had uh, Tony Blair and, for the uh, twenty ten election, Gordon Brown as the leader uh, leaders of the Labour Party, and so were. Prime Ministers regardless of what you view their policies as, who uh, were election winning successful Prime Ministers and were seen as fairly well, mainstream, politics. well, well yeah, even Gordon Brown though compared to, um, sorry I, yeah, he didn't win the election, but in terms of his reputation and um, perception mm. of him as a serious credible yeah. politician who could be Prime Minister, uh, he didn't suffer from that um, particular flaw. So you had uh, you know, the time when the Lib Dems did best was the Blair-Brown years when people felt safe to vote Lib Dem, knowing that even if Labour Party got in as a result, it wouldn't matter. The times the party has struggled are, uh, 92, Neil Kinnock, uh, 2015, Ed Miliband, 2017, 19, Jeremy Corbyn. Each of those leaders was Mm. viewed, rightly or wrongly, viewed by the public as not great prime ministerial um, Mm. candidates. They were also elections where, um, in three of those four, Uh, It was thought a hung parliament was quite likely, uh, and therefore that a vote for the Lib Dems was in effect likely to lead to a vote for uh, a Labour uh, leader becoming prime minister. So I think there's been, you know, when you have that dual, uh, that double whammy, I suppose, of uh, a likely hung parliament, Mm. perception thereof, uh, and an unpopular Labour leader, the Lib Dems really, really struggle. And uh, it's hard to know what you can do about the former because obviously the Lib Dems will hope for hung parliament because that's the best yeah. uh, short-term step the party can get. But it is not in control of the party who gets to be yeah. Labour leader.
0: And I guess for older listeners, we could throw in 1974 and 1964 as elections, which you remember well, which, Mark. Absolutely, which which fit that pattern yeah. uh, that you made. And I mean, it strikes me there is therefore both a there is a complacent and pessimistic conclusion one can draw, which is that the basic big picture story of the Liberal Democrat problem in this election was a traditional two-party squeeze. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I say it's a complacent problem because if you say that that was just a big, sorry, complacent uh, lesson to draw, because if you say that was just a big underlying structural problem it then immediately allows us to excuse Mm -hmm. all sorts of other possible mistakes or failings or misjudgments because it's all in the context of actually there was this big factor. Um, It's also a slightly pessimistic conclusion Mm -hmm. to draw as well because that's exactly what we're clearly going to face at the next election unless the party finds some sort of Hail Mary pass way out of it. It's much more likely that the sensible approach on strategy and organisation is going to be a how do you deal with that rather than a how, yeah. do we, how do we have a, a um, combination of Justin Trudeau, Barack Obama <laughs> and Emmanuel Macron all moving to Britain at the same time?
1: And all found within 11 people in the Lib Dem party. <laughs> exactly. Parties, yeah. um, I, I'm like, and I, I think I, there's
0: some truth in, in how important that overall factor is. And again, one thing I think that we will need to put a lot of work in into the party is, to, is, is how do we break that two-party squeeze? And Paddy Ashdown's answer in part was, maybe one should say Pat Ashton and Chris Reynolds' answer, in part in 92 ninety seven was to run a target seat operation of, of an effectiveness that was way beyond what the other parties were able to do. Mm-hmm. Question, are we able to in some way find a campaign magic ticket of a similar form? And the other element of that political strategy was essentially cozying up to a Labour Party but it was a Labour Party that was heading towards yeah. rather than away from yeah. the centre ground whether the party has the choice the option to go for that if it wishes we don't know because it's partly yeah. out of our control plus of course and hopefully we will see this play out in a, in a good leadership debate uh, a good leadership election and the debates around that you know, there are arguments the other way as well and uh, hopefully we will You know, the, the leadership contest will provide an opportunity for the party to have that yeah. have that debate um, and it's why I think a lot of the initial reactions from people is to say the party should take more rather than less time to conclude its leadership election because mm-hmm. we need to work through these sorts of yep. issues. Evidence is important in that just the ability to get some sleep and therefore begin to think about these issues with a clear mind and so on is important in that yeah. um, but there will be lots of interesting debates in 2020
1: on that score yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Is there anything uh, within the Lib Dem institution <coughs> which says that the leader does have to be elected within a certain time frame? Or is that something that uh, the federal board can put set to one side and so allow for you know, six months? Um, uh, so there is a
0: lot of flexibility because there is a fixed timetable, uh, a minimum, maximum time, the number of weeks the election must take from when the election commences. Mm-hmm. But there is some discretion over when, do you say, the election commences. So it's not that the timetable kicks off automatically when a leader ceases being leader. Okay. Um, so there is some flexibility. And it is most likely that the timetable will be agreed by the new federal board at its sort of first meeting in January. Mm-hmm. So listeners, watch out for news on that in due course. Okay. Um, I could second guess what that decision might be at this stage, but I think it's also quite possible that people's views will evolve mm-hmm. uh, when they've had a chance to sleep, catch up, see what, as well, the Labour Party, i notice, have just announced actually a very quick timetable for them, that they're wanting to get their new leader in place before the local elections mm-hmm. uh, next spring. Uh, so, who knows, the yeah. use of the party may change and may evolve by the time the Federal Board makes that decision. Yeah.
1: Um, now one of the other and obviously,
0: I will be pitching for a uh, leadership election in
1: 2027. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one of the other uh, issues that we've touched on in previous podcasts, and which, again, I've seen Quite a lot of controversy online about uh, is, of course, uh, the targeting strategy. Yep. Um, because <coughs> uh, the party lost out on, mm. you'll tell me the exact number, but a handful of seats by fewer than a thousand votes. Uh, it was six seats by fewer than a thousand, I think, yep. wasn't it? And then another
0: batch by not that much. You know, there's, yep. there's a steady there's a steady sort of flow of seats as you sure. go down the, the margins. Yeah.
1: Now, to an extent, you know, some, that does always happen. Um, mm. And, you know, the, the cut-off line has to be somewhere. But obviously there is a bit of controversy this time because lots of resources yep. and uh, activist mm. time, etc., mm. was diverted mm. into seats that um, turned out yeah. to not be. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, the party did okay in yeah. a place like Kensington, um, where the party put in a strong showing, but mm. nonetheless came third. Yet a lot of time was yep. taken up um, going into Kensington. Would that have been a better place yep. going into Carshalton yep. and making sure that Tom yep. Brake didn't lose, etc.? Um, so et so I mean, what's, what's your sense of whether or yep. not the party got so, its targeting um, strategy right? So uh, some time? preliminary provisional thoughts,
0: again subject to proper rigorous analysis by the election review team next year. I think firstly, the party did deliberately make a gamble on trying to achieve a breakthrough to stop Brexit rather than to play safe and go for a small incremental advance I think particularly in the context of trying to stop Brexit that gamble was the right one to make I mean I'm thinking you know I was sat in meetings where I could have said no this gamble is massively foolhardy we mustn't do it who knows whether I would have persuaded people if I said that but there are definitely things I look back on I think where I've made mistakes you know wish I'd done something different actually that isn't one of them I think mm-hmm. if. If Are you going we, to tell us about the ones where we, uh, you did speak? No, 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 uh, is that, I mean, imagine how massively controversial it would have been if we'd said, well, we're only targeting 15 seats. Mm-hmm. And we're trying. So that's one. Secondly, the party had a very well-resourced election campaign. So that in terms of literature, the decision to target lots of seats rather than a small number didn't, end, didn't reduce the amount of literature that was going out mm-hmm. in those target seats. Um, so definitely you know you might think well the party should have put more effort into say Joe Swinson's seat, but you look at the volume of literature voters were receiving. you know even me, a hardcore lo- high volume literature works because here is all the evidence sort of advocate and yeah you know, there's lots of evidence from outside the party as well as internal party data loads of loads of really good rigorous research and so on. but yeah. You know, if we had, say, targeted half the number of seats and therefore doubled the volume of national direct mail and door-to-door mm-hmm. delivery stuff, even I would concede I think we would have been testing mm-hmm. <laughs> to destruction this idea that there's not, no such thing as too much literature. You know, you, you, you would have literally been having multiple items of literature through people's letterboxes every day for, yeah. for a lot, many days. Um, but volunteer capacity is a very important yeah. exception. In in that sense that there were people who were within easy travel distance of seats that we lost by small margins on polling day, for example, who were campaigning in other seats. And there's definitely a big question therefore about whether um although setting out originally with an ambitious targeting plan, I think probably will turn out with hindsight and so on still to be justified, <coughs> did the party do enough to think through We've got to redirect our resources, so maybe the direct mail carries on going out in mm-hmm. some of these seats, which will hopefully help get us get us a second place for a future election, which is a you know an important yeah. side effect. But maybe we should completely shut down the volunteer campaigning activity and redirect it. Um, and I think there's a, there's quite a lot of complexity around that because in part some of those decisions may have been constrained by uh, a desire to treat people who had switched. The party MPs mm-hmm. would switch from other parties to our party by desire to treat them well, and that's actually a very good, admirable motivation. It may, in part, there may, in part, be questions about how good was the party's data in terms of what was yeah. really understand understanding what was going on, and where. And in part, I think there are also some lessons about just how much do we make it a part of a PPC's so a prospective parliamentary candidate and then in due course parliamentary candidates' expectation of the role that is look you may have to stop campaigning in your seat and go and help elsewhere mm-hmm. because there's understandably often a lot of instinctive pushback from candidates. Yeah. That said, massive praise is due to the many parliamentary candidates who did go and help in seats mm-hmm. other than their own. They often were sensibly discreet about it, not you know not sharing selfies on social media <laughs> of them canvassing in a seat other than their own. So a lot of them, I think, probably are not at the moment getting as much credit from party colleagues as perhaps they should do but really, really impressive to see so many, you know, parliamentary candidates uh, out in seats, for example, on polling day, many, many miles away from their own constituency. That was, a, you know, a a really a really good thing that we need to build on. Um, so I think the broad question answer to your question is: I think the, the the go targeting big probably was right. Where it went wrong, when it went wrong, should we have spotted sooner? Should we have therefore tried to redirect more volunteer resource? I think are all questions TBC. Yeah,
1: and was there any? I, I saw this, uh, made comments made on social media that uh, the uh, those who had defected to the Lib Dems kind of got preferential treatment, and that it should have been, uh, you know, when it was obvious. I don't know whether it was obvious that uh, a couple of those were not going to win that it you know, those resources should have been reallocated. I'm I'm guessing from what you're saying that you don't think that would have... A, was the case, or B, that if it was the case, that it would have made enough of a difference in any case. But
0: Yeah, well, I think in answering that question, we need to separate out things like the direct mail and the literature Mm -hmm. from volunteers canvassing and then on polling day knocking up, because I think the former... Not uh, a problem. Not a problem. The party yeah. was sufficiently well resourced, and the fact that you know in some of these seats that we didn't win, the party nonetheless has got a good second place is mm-hmm. actually useful for the future. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, if you'd said, "Well, should we spend this money on getting a second place in some seats um, or not?" Well, if we're maxing out the amount of money we're spending in the seats that we think we've got a chance winning, you know, you'd say that's sort of the right decision to sure. make. The volunteer capacity one is a, is the big question, and on that, I think it's a it's a very open question because yeah. uh, there are definitely. Um, Some indications that mistakes may have been made there. But also, it is... One of the errors in judging how, say, targeting was operated in an election is always afterwards, Mm -hmm. with the advantage of hindsight,
1: to think all those who say, you
0: know, targeting is never going to be perfect. Some errors are always going to happen. But an an error-prone process is better than no process at all when it comes to to targeting. So, yeah, yeah, I... Yeah, I'm I'm not just being a politician, but I'm being absolutely genuine when I'm saying, you know, I I really want to see what our election review says Mm -hmm. on this, because there's a lot of evidence that we'll need digging into. Yeah. Excellent. So, evidence-based, fact-based politics is the future. Is that your clarion call? Well, somebody's got to... Pay attention to evidence. I don't think the government is going to be <laughs> uh, is going yeah. to be championing that cause for a long while. Yeah,
1: have we run dry our list of I things? I think we that have. We were, that's our post mortem of the. That is uh, our preliminary, generation.
0: initial yes. subject to change post mortem. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, that's it, Mark. Indeed, it, it is. End of season one. Season two beckons in the new year. And thank you very much for everything in season one, Stephen, especially your increasingly audible voice through the season as I've learned how to edit audio (laughs)
1: increasingly effectively. Proportionate to my optimism about Lib Dem chances, of course. Always the optimist, Stephen.